Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, and you're host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and a big welcome back to The Card Podcast. We've been missing for the last couple of months. I've been busy recording a new program, Energizer, which is a career coaching program to connect individuals and their essence to where they want to go in the future. And it's really an instrument to help organizations retain and develop people in a unique way that uh, we'll be bringing you more into the future. So what's this space? Our topic today on the card is what drives engagement and happiness at work. And I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Phelan. So Matt, I know going back a little while from many different business context and personal. Firstly, he's a dad and to his two kids, Izzy and Fred. And uh, I love the way he comes across in a very human way. And I'm always energetically excited when I leave a conversation with Matt. Why is he speaking to us today? Well, he's just published his second book and that book, The Happiness Index, is uh, why today's emotions equal tomorrow's business success. And Matt's business, The Happiness Index, dive into data from over 100 countries and 2 million human beings that help us understand what really drives our happiness and engagement at work. So that's a brief intro. He also has the Happiness in Humans podcast, which I'd highly recommend you listen to as well. So a very big welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for having us on, John. And I have to correct you on one bit. It's our book. Don't forget, there's a contributor in there called uh, John Fitzgerald that people should look up if they do read the book. Yes, indeed. I did make a contribution to the book, a very small one. So as we always do in the podcast, a little bit about you, Matt, and tell us a little bit about your younger formative years, key influences and the values that you gained from your upbringing. As you know, you've met my mum, John. My mum's from County Clare. My dad's parents are from Ireland, but my dad grew up in Brixton in London. And I suppose for me, I kind of knew this question was coming. And one of the things I was thinking about is my sort of earliest memories are, it sounds a really bizarre thing to talk about, but was a, a tax investigation into my parents' taxes. I won't go into the whole story today, but as I was sort of like, I don't know, before, just before you reach teenage years, and there was a tax investigation that effectively meant that my parents lost all of their money. And I think if my dad was here and he tells the story is his parents were migrants from Ireland and they started their own businesses and all these types of things to try and get off the ground in the UK. But my dad would always say that my, his dad's weakness is he would always trust someone. This is a very, it's probably a common migrant story. He'd always trust someone if they had a posh English accent and um, they trusted an accountant that was effectively diddling all the money away and all this kind of stuff. But for me, I don't see it as a negative, but it definitely meant that I sort of grew up with a scarcity mindset because all those simple things that my children, Fred and Izzy, take for granted. I coach my daughter's football team. We've never had to have a conversation about whether we can get football boots or whatever, but I sort of grew up not being able to afford the basic stuff. That still drives me today. But we might come back to the HMRC thing as well. It's massively influenced the way that I run my business in terms of making sure we get the right advice, making sure that we all, I don't see paying tax as a bad thing. I see, I see it as making sure I can sleep at night. 
So it's quite an extreme thing, but because my family were in farming and business, like it was just chaos, like mad cow disease, foot and mouth, tax investigations, 1987 hurricane. Like I just grew up in all these like crazy times, but I wasn't having to do anything about it. But I think to answer your question, I think it definitely created a scarcity mindset in me. And I have to make sure I'm aware of that as well because I don't want to be someone who's always just like working to get more, to get more, to get more, just because I'm worried there might not be money for my children there one day. That was definitely a big, had a, had a big impact on me. We were both grew up on farms then. <laughs> we, we both have parents from the Midwest in Ireland. And you talk about a scarcity mindset, but obviously there was an entrepreneurial mindset that has brought you to where you are today. Yeah, it's funny, John. Have you watched um, Have you watched the Sylvester Stallone documentary on the Netflix yet? I have it and play. I'm I'm waiting to watch it, so it might be my watch this weekend. Number one is brilliant. Number two, I'm not about to compare myself to Sylvester Stallone, but there is a bit in it. I made the mistake of saying to one of my friends recently, she's a huge Sly fan for this documentary. I made the mistake of saying Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is the modern version of Sylvester Stallone, and she went absolutely crazy at me and corrected me massively on how much Sly had done in his early career, like writing films, producing films, rocking, which I didn't know about. But Sly says something in the first episode, which I thought was fascinating, which is the reason he wrote a movie and wrote a movie and produced a movie is because no one would cast him as an actor. So I'm about to link it back a bit to your work, John. I think ultimately, I'm not sure how employable I am. I think I am a bit of a person who likes to, just be a bit of a renegade. So I think I've always had this entrepreneurial mindset to do my own thing, but I think it's more because I don't fit into other companies than I would want to necessarily always run my own business. And I do feel through the work that I do, actually, that is partly why work needs to change because it fits to a certain type of people. And I just don't think I'm that type of person. So I'm co-CEO now because I made myself co-CEO. I don't think I would have made it as a CEO in most organizations. And I'm not, I'm not looking for like any kind of like, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I just know what I look at job descriptions of what a CEO is and I know that's not me. So it's a bit of a roundabout way of answering your question. I've always wanted to do my own thing, but it's more because I couldn't do that in an organization. So I had to do it outside of it. But I think in meeting you, what makes you so successful is you're really connected to your mission. And that comes across really, really strong and authentically. So maybe share what your mission is and why you started the Happiness Index. Again, I was so I used to work at the Guardian. I was worked at a company that got bought by the Guardian Group, like the Guardian newspaper and everything. Whatever your politics, right? That is a great organization. Even if you're like a right wing or don't like the Guardian or whatever, it's a great organization and what they stand for. And the culture there was a really impressive culture. But I always wanted to be like um, like an advertising person and work in advertising. And I went and worked for one of the big, like the big famous ones in London. And the culture was just absolutely horrific and I hated it. And it's weird two men discussing this, but it's now what you'd call a toxic masculine culture. But it's not ironic. The sad thing about toxic masculinity is it's bad. It's obviously terrible for women and much worse for women, but it's also bad for men. And I just didn't want to be part of that environment. So again, it was like a leap of what else am I going to do? I might as well start my own one. Because I just, I just felt, it, I felt that like icky feeling around. I, just, I don't want to be part of this. I'm just doing my own thing. And then Chris, who you know, he, we were playing football that night and he said, oh, I'll do it with you. So 
this is the weird thing. When you speak to most people at the Happiness Index, and we're not a huge company, we're like 40 people, most people at the Happiness Index have had a really bad experience in their career. And it sometimes takes time for it to be surfaced. It took someone nine years to tell me really that they'd actually been fired in their last job. They never told me that. I didn't care. I still would have hired them because I think context everything. But I think it comes from not liking the way things is. And that seems to drive a lot of us at the Happiness Index. That's really interesting because I meet people who are coming out of organizations through either taking a package or compulsory redundancy. And they're looking for a culture where they can thrive, but they find it hard to find that alternative culture. And going back to what you're about in employee engagement and happiness, I've seen that employee engagement survey stick at, you know, 34% or whatever for years and years. The dial hasn't shifted. Why did you decide to take that on? And what was your purpose behind that? Well, firstly, I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know what employee engagement was. I just wanted to understand. I didn't have a HR background. We have great HR people now, which help us build stuff for HR professionals. But I didn't even know what it was. The first MD I had a a job in, he said to me, he goes, Matt, do you know what the problem with you is? And I thought, oh, God, what's coming? And he said, um, I could imagine you getting this feedback as well at some point in your career. He said, um, he goes, the problem with you, Matt, is you ask too many questions. And... um, and it was really funny. I was really fighting the urge because I had a question to ask him. And I said to him, why is that a bad thing? But he was so angry that I'd asked him another question. But the way that I work is if I don't know something, I'll just try and explore it. So I found out who invented employee engagement, who coined it, someone called Bill Kahn at Boston University. And I actually hunted him down and got into the question. So I was like, so what is employee engagement? Because the way that my brain works, I'm just not going to accept that that's what it is. I need to know, like, if I'm going to find out about employee engagement, I'm going to find the person that coined it. So I found him and we did a podcast together. But he basically, his story is employee engagement, when he coined it, was actually called personal engagement. And it had different layers to it. And one of those layers is emotions. But in his words, he says his work got taken out of academia and used by, I don't want to blame everything on Dutch universities, but he said a lot of Dutch universities that sort of took this principle and took out the emotional bit. And then the big sort of like big business consultancies took it and then they sold it over and over again. And it became this thing that didn't have emotions in it. I'm simplifying Bill's story, but he's the guy who created the thing that came the monster that he doesn't really believe in anymore. So his name's associated with it. But he's like, that's not what it was supposed to be. That's why we use the word happiness, because it's just an intro into emotion. We do look at all emotions, but happiness is a, is a way of getting people interested in the subject. So it's layered in neuroscience. I know the model, but for people who don't know the model that your data platform is built on, could you bring us through that, that triangle at a top level? Yeah. So at the top, we talk about creating a thriving culture. I'm from Essex, so we pronounce thriving with an F, so it's thriving from Essex. It's it's thriving if you're from anywhere else, which I got really bad feedback on the audio book on my last book about, but never mind, that's a story for another day. Um, And what it talks about is happiness is what your heart needs and engagement is what your brain needs from a neuroscientific perspective. But then as you go down, and I saw in one of your notes, John, you said it looks a bit like a Maslow hierarchy of needs. 
And that's the problem with triangles, isn't it? Maslow has dominated the triangle. The brand of Maslow has taken that over. And when we first drew it, we thought it was a Maslow, but really it actually doesn't work from bottom up. It sort of works from left to right, which is you've got your instincts on the left, which is things like freedom and safety. Then it goes to your emotions, which is things like relationships. Then it goes to your rational thoughts, things like workload and so on. And then it goes to reflection on the right. So it's a bit of a weird one because whenever you see a triangle, we work from bottom up, but the our model really works from left to right in a triangle. So, But it really helps people focus on what's important because if you're building a culture, there's a million factors, isn't there? And it's complicated and you read all the HR manuals, where do you start? Like for me, it really brings home my... Although relationships, when we look at the data, comes out as the top driver of happiness, I always think when I look at the model and look at the research and the data that safety is the place to start because if someone doesn't feel safe it work. You can chuck out all the rest of the manuals, can't you? Absolutely. Like everything else can be chucked out if someone doesn't feel safe. And just for people then with the neuroscience link and those four different areas, they're linked to the brain. Can you just bring that back for a small second for people who understand why those four are the themes? It's a really good point. So when we're talking about the brain, we're talking about the four different areas that work as systems. So if I, if I just pick on one, which is the prefrontal cortex, when we talk about the parts of our model, which include the reflective brain, that is stuff that's coming from our prefrontal cortex, which is as human beings, that's where things like creativity sit. So, and that's what I mean, like you might as well chuck the manual out around the rest of it if you can't start with safety, because safety sits in the instinctive part of the brain. But if you're in fight or flight mode, and you're just worrying, and I suppose it goes, it goes back to scarcity. It's, I have to remind myself not to be in a scarcity fight or flight mode. If you're in fight or flight mode at work and you're just worried about survival, you're not going to be able to access that prefrontal cortex part of your brain, which is where creativity sits, because your body's just trying to like fight or flight, whereas you need to move through to that, the body through and be able to be relaxed so you can be creative. And um, that's what I think great leaders do. And automatically, my mind goes to the pandemic there when you talk about the fight or flight and how that impacted people and their brains. What was the data showing you through that period of time? And I read in your book that, you know, the great resignation was something, for example, that you were predicting in advance of it actually happening. So maybe just any data that you can share from your insights there. For me, the most fascinating thing that happened in the pandemic was for the first time ever, the thing that was making people the happiest was the same as the thing that was making people the unhappiest. And we haven't seen that before or after. And it was quite surprising to see. And we've actually spoke about it in depth already, which is family. So the thing that was driving people's happiness was family, but the thing that was driving people's unhappiness was family. So it was, when I say family, John, I take the more much more better modern route of family, which it doesn't necessarily have to be someone you're related to because you might not have children. You might be an only child. It's your, for me, family is those five or six people in your core group that you really rely on and, and you see as your family. So I don't necessarily mean blood relatives on that perspective, but it was mainly because it was great. Some people were at home and they could, like me, I could see my kids more than I ever did, but it was also my biggest worry 
because like well my kids like what's the future the world's going to end all this kind of stuff that we sort of laugh about it now don't we but we didn't nobody had a clue what was going on and my daughter really struggled with anxiety coming out of the pandemic and things like that so it was a thing that was making me happy i'm with my family but it was also i was split up from my wider family that i'm really close with i couldn't see them i couldn't see my nieces and nephews lots of people couldn't attend funerals and all these kinds of stuff all this nonsense that's that work is work and home is home all just went out in the pandemic and i do think that was a good thing about it because i think it gave ceos more empathy for their employees i think it will go to me with my grave i remember a ceo when we looked at their data and their employees were struggling about work environment and the ceo turned to me and said um just don't understand why don't they work from the study what's the stress and I just waited, you know, when you wait for someone to work it out themselves. And obviously their average age of this company of employees is 22, 23. They're living in London. They're flat sharing. They're all sharing one Wi-Fi. And again, it's, it's the power of data, isn't it? Because I have permission from that CEO to tell that story. I don't have permission to sell, say their name because it's a big brand. But this guy's living a privileged life. He's built his career up. He lives in a nice house. He's got a study. But he just didn't know. He couldn't feel what his employees were going through. And, it, and seeing that data, let him figure it out himself, suddenly like clicked something in his head. And then he, he changed a lot of stuff based on that. That really struck me about your platform and that one question that you asked in space, how are you feeling? That was something that really came up during the pandemic. And being able to score that from zero to 10, I think it was. And you get that sense of where people were at from a feeling perspective, which is, you know, as you said in the book, humans are messy. And uh, that's the piece, I suppose, that leader just wanted people to do that industrial thing and be structured and do their work and not have to worry about feelings. It's just that viewing people as robots, isn't it? And it, seeing it as you're the head robot and you've got to get all the robots to do their work, which is kind of what engagement became. Whereas that's just not life, is it? And we know that the way that we feel impacts the way that we do stuff, but in work, it kind of just gets ignored, doesn't it? So we've talked about the instinctive piece, which is psychological safety. And then when we move on to emotions, acknowledgement was your joint lowest score. And I did a blog about a year ago where I talked about acknowledgement instead of acceleration, because I see a lot of organizations just accelerating from one project to the next with no sense of ending and reflecting on how we did in this project. They're straight away into the next one. And this sense of always peddling on survival mode and a scarcity mindset, maybe back to what you've talked about. So just talk to me about the emotional piece and why that was the joint low score from your data. It's really interesting. I think it also has, and I like to just remind people that the happiness index doesn't have the perfect culture ourselves and all our employees are not happy all the time. Because um, I don't want to think that I'm a preacher out there saying we do it all right. I'm just sharing the data. But even we went through our data yesterday and acknowledgement has the highest standard deviation, which for the non-data people means we've got some people that feel like they're really acknowledged and some people they feel like they're not. And so standard deviation, all that's a simple thing. It's quite, it's quite good to see if there's differences of opinion. Um, but I think mostly the reason for it is the way that we want relationships is quite similar as human beings, but the way that we want to be acknowledged varies hugely from person to person. The example I use of messing it up in my career is with our current CTO. 
Matt Stallard when we did a neuroscience upgrade. So we, it was the first time we put the neuroscience into the platform, all this stuff we're talking about. And I did a shout out to Matt because it was a huge body of work, working with Clive Highland, who you know, um, and so on, like a huge group effort and moved us light years ahead. And I did a shout out of the company update. So let's just want to say thanks to Matt. Again, I say thanks with an F, by the way, John, I'm just translating for you. And he hated it. He absolutely hated it. I shone a light on someone who doesn't want a light shot on him. And I have permission to share this story as I shine a light again. But for Matt, I've worked with Matt for over 15 years. What Matt wants, he wants to go for a coffee with me and we have a little private little chat about it. He does not want me to say that publicly. So that's just an example that I use because I want to, again, I don't want to say that I'm perfect to any of this, but we all do it. Simon Berry, who's in the book, who's an expert on reward and recognition, told me a story on the, the Happiness in Humans podcast about how in his first job, he did really well and he won a gold watch. But if you ever meet uh, Simon, although he's been a really successful entrepreneur, he's similar to you in the fact, John, that you're not blingy at all and he hates bling. So for him, to have this like real totem on his arm was horrible for him, but it was the thing that was given to him to be recognized, but it made him feel bad. And ironically, I think he says on the podcast, he went to sell it because he was like, oh, I don't want this. He thought I'll just have the money. And then the company got annoyed at him because he was trying to sell it. So it was like, everything is going wrong here, isn't it? It's a disaster. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge. The overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. You just brought up a fantastic memory from a, when I was uh, about seven years of age and I was always in competition with this girl in my class, with a small class, and she was always winning. I can't name her, but she was, um, she was always winning the spelling competition and it was expected that she would win it, but I actually won it. And I think I was in second class and uh, I had the elation of winning this for the first time, first in my class. I've never been first in my class before. And I get a book that was about cats. <laughs> I had no interest in cats, even though I grew up on a farm. But mother of God, talk about going from a high to a low acknowledgement. The teacher was there and uh, I just brought home sheepishly this book home to my parents and said, I want the spelling, but uh, the gift didn't really correspond. Um, have you still got that book, John? I don't think so. <laughs> uh. Okay, very good. So we're moving on then from acknowledgement and positive relationships in the emotional piece, which is the heart that you talk about, to the brain and reflective. So there you talk about meaning and purpose and opportunities for growth. And obviously we see a lot of this when we're talking about people's career and opportunities for growth being a big challenge for organizations around retention. And you make a great point in the book, and we see it from our recruitment division here, people want the perfect hire. And I think I read, when hiring, consider it people who meet 60% of the job brief and then give them the extra 40% to grow into it. So talk to me about that reflective piece of meaning and purpose and opportunities for growth of the data. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because when we get into reflective, we're now talking about the engagement piece and we are talking about what the brain needs rather than what the heart needs. So we'll pick both of them off one by one. Purpose people often relate to the heart, but really when you think about purpose, it's around direction, which is what your brain needs so it can get the rest of the body moving in that right direction. So if you think of it, if you think of the brain and the body together and you think about like what you're talking about, John, with Energizer, if your brain isn't pointed where you want to go, it then can't get the rest of the body to go in that direction. So is it a surprise? And you might feel it as an emotion because you feel unhappy because you don't have purpose, but it's actually what the brain needs. But it's not really a surprise when you break it down and think about it, which is if you haven't given the brain purpose and direction, the body isn't getting the messages that this is where we need to go. So let's like, let's fire up and get moving over there. And so that's a bit on purpose and just linking it. I think the example we use often is to think of purpose as the sat nav and think because think of happiness as the fuel to get you there. And that energy piece is so hugely important. And so many people, what they don't want to do, but very few know that direction. And, and that's what I was talking about your mission earlier on. You come across, you truly know what your North Star is, though it isn't a destination, it's more a direction in what you're striving for. I think a lot of people in organizations, this is where the engagement piece really dips down, is that we're just doing work rather than feeling that we're connected to it. And I think this is where I believe. So from a DNA perspective, 50% of your happiness is nature and 40% is nurture. 10% is related to your background. But this is where I think leadership comes in. This is where I think great leaders understand how do we influence the way that people think and feel in the organization positively to move that whole body of very talented people. Because let's just assume you've done your hiring right and everyone's got the skills that you need, that 60%, and you've got a good team. How do you move them all in the right direction? And that's where I think that 40% of your happiness comes from the way that you think. But if you think of it as a group, the CEO or the leaders of that company, they have a massive opportunity to influence how everyone moves in that direction. And then we go to the rational piece, which is clarity and enablement to succeed, which is, again, the brain element and engagement. It's funny because I would probably say these are my weaknesses as a leader, these two. And it's funny, I got my, uh, we get our own results back from the happiness index because we have to actually use our own stuff. And it's funny, I've over-indexed on it. So I've gone too far the other way now. I was scoring best in these two, uh, but I've dropped a bit off on energetic connections, which naturally is something that I've always like fostered in the team. But I've actually got to do a bit more of what is actually the bit that I was traditionally good at. But I've over-indexed on things like clarity, but because it was always my weakness, um, which is all those things. Like if you think a job description, like if you take, let's take a role like sales, like people think it's easy. Well, the salesperson, their job is to go and sell. But to think of it in other job roles, a nurse's job, their job is to nurse. Well, what does that actually mean? And in certain job roles, for some reason, that we just underestimate the importance of just giving people clarity on what you want them to achieve. And again, it's that, that piece. Like once the brain's got that and they know that, it can start moving the rest of the body and the emotions to where you want to go. So for me... And they're really important. They're probably one of my favorite podcasts, because obviously I interview all the experts like yourself, John, on these subjects. And we had someone come on called Stephen Bianchi who covers um, information flow. And beforehand, 
I was not energetically connected with that subject because I thought, oh, this is the bit that I don't really enjoy, but I'm going to extra listen because I know this is my weakness. And Stephen talked a lot about thinking about information flow as if you've got your like hand on the throttle of information. Like, are you releasing too much information to the ecosystem or not enough? And it's just this, this little thing that you have in your head because some companies do too much, some don't do any. But again, like the amount of information you share out and communicate of a leader and the speed at which you do it is really important. So all of those things will impact your employees' ability to be to feel engaged and happy at work. And I suppose people seeing the bigger picture and being connected to that rather than just doing their job. So if I was an organization then and I had these data points, paint a picture for me around how this makes a difference to my organization if I can measure this and I can get this data back. And how is that harvested? So the first thing that I want to put out there is you can't make your employees happy. It's one of the things that people think that that's what we stand for, like go out there and tell everyone to be happy. We advocating for happiness. It's like if I told you, if you came on here, John, and you're a bit grumpy before the show, which John wasn't, just so everyone knows, and I told you to cheer up, only one thing would happen is you'd get a bit annoyed with me and you could be quite rightly tell me to do one because I don't know what's happened since we chatted. could have been through some serious stuff. So all you can do is collect the data and then you can improve the areas that you are not fulfilling what I would say is your obligation of an, as an employer. So what I don't think you can do is make someone happy, but you can be aware of the factors that drive happiness and engagement and therefore work hard to improve and offer those factors. So as I said myself, like I know as a leader, I'd score low traditionally on things like clarity. So because I've seen that in the data, I'm hyper-focused on it. I'm like, I'm like, right, I need to provide clarity. Like even when it gets to review time and anniversaries in the happiness index, again, it's not necessarily been my forte, but I, I get the HR team and I'm like, I need your help. I want to make sure I get my team clarity. <laughs> To the point where I've probably gone a bit too far now, but I know that I've seen that in the data and I've seen the negative impact of not offering that. But you might be the other way. You might personal relationships, positive relationships, you might not have seen them as important. And you see in the data that they're low and then suddenly, actually, maybe I will get involved in those things that I didn't think were important, like organizing the summer get together or whatever that maybe you thought, oh, that's just the fluffy stuff that HR do. Um, I've even seen that this week where I was working with a group and we were discussing the roles and the skills that are going to be in demand in that organization in the future. And what was really becoming apparent was that the managers don't need to manage the way they did. They really need to do more of giving them the clarity and coaching and developing others. And that is something that it's that moving from the traditional manager to the leader of the future. And I think that's a big shift that needs to happen. If you think about your eight data sets, it can give fantastic information to that leader to see where they're strong, but also to see what they can do to bring their people through the change that they might be facing. We had an example of that even in the Happiness Index recently, John, where we got to the point where we're scaling, where form not necessarily needed a certain level of sales director and instead of bringing in a, a sales director board in a sales coach and 
it was four or five months into it, and the, all the, the we just had a couple of live record months. <laughs> and kind of my reflection on it is that I didn't want someone to come in and get in the way of the salespeople because we've got some great salespeople. I also didn't want to just leave them without support. And they're all great salespeople who want to sell. They enjoy what they're doing. But rather than managing, rather than having a manager, they've got a coach um, who's not full-time. And interestingly, they're all doing really well, but they're getting all those things they need, like clarity and emotional support, but they're not getting managed, which is, is, is a fascinating learning for myself as well. Yeah, and I picked up this line from, I think it's towards the very end of your book, where the quote, it stopped us, it's time to stop seeing employees like industrial batteries that you simply exhaust and chuck away and start treating them as part of an ecosystem that needs nurturing and regenerating. And when you talk about sales cultures, you're normally thinking about, you know, driven, get the next number, get it on or whatever, rather than this nurturing and regenerating, which maybe you're introducing a model there which can change sales teams to the future, Matt, you know, bringing in somebody who's of that mindset. But I think for me, that comes back to, you know, like we both spoke about farming at the beginning that I've kept, again, even if I'm not in the industry, I will go to events and I will try and learn and I don't want to bore the people that are on here that are not interested in farming, but regenerative farming has been a revolution in farming. But from a very basic level, after like World War One and World War Two, all of that industrial machinery that was used to make tanks and to make chemical warfare was repointed towards the farming industry. So pesticides, what, what they built. What the farming world didn't realise that was happening is that all those things that were used and put into the ground basically meant that you could get a better crop yield and bigger animals and all this kind of stuff over a short period of time. What people didn't realize is they've degraded the soils of anything. So when you plow a field, you basically just absolutely decimate it and then you put something in there and it grows. That world of regenerative thinking, is, I think, is starting to come into business in the way that there's a really good book, I think it's called From um, Dirt to Soil. We used to just think like soil was the thing that you just shove the plants in and then it comes out. But now we're realizing it's a sophisticated ecosystem that has all these things like bacteria. But now I think that type of thinking is starting to come into work. And that's kind of where that battery thing came from, which is I think that's how people used to look at their employees. I'll get as much out of this person as I can. When they burn out or leave, I'll just get another one. That's not well. Now with a global talent shortage and skills shortage, we need to be more appreciative of human beings. And I also read the nature piece that you talk about in the book towards the end as well, which is fascinating. And I use that example when people are in, are in career transition. And I just came off a call with a senior person who, you know, is just leaving an organization and is in such a mad panic to get started in the next job. And it's not respecting nature because that person could you know, accept a job offer in a new organization and it's the wrong culture. It's not where he needs to be right now. And he just needs to take time. And I use the example of, you know, pregnancy. It takes nine months for a human to form. And similarly, in an executive job search, it takes a similar time period for people to extensively look at the market and make sure that they're making the right decision. And I think for ourselves as humans, we need that that nature and and um, I suppose that analogy that you use there is is really on the money. I think 
uh, as human beings, we had a, an arrogance that we're sort of like separate from nature. We're part of nature. Whatever your beliefs, whatever your religion or not religion or whatever, I don't think it's controversial to now think of ourselves as part of nature. The thing that always teaches me that, and for those that don't know Ireland, the great place to go surfing is Lahinch, which is where my mum's from. Just go down to Lahinch and watch the surfers. If you are going to try and fight those waves, you're going to be there for the history of time, aren't you, trying to fight those waves? I always think the beach is the best place to go because you can fight that those waves as much as you want, but they're going to come in and out and they're going to crash you and they're going to put you under the water. But I can't surf, even though I've tried a million times, but you watch those best surfers in that cold water. They're riding with it, aren't they? They've learned how to ride with it, Mark. It's an art. It's mastering an art and a skill set, which is fantastic to see. A couple of things I wanted to touch on before we wrapped up. Hybrid working, people with increased flexibility, anything in the data there that's showing us where we're going? We're talking about four-day weeks. Where do you think we're going as a society now? Yeah, I think the conversations get confused and they get politicised. And I think it's become the office versus the home debate has confused what the data suggests is the most important debate, which is flexibility. Flexibility and office, the office debate are two separate issues. And what I always say is that some people want to work from home. Some people want to work hybrid. Some roles you can't. If you're a security guard of a high security area, you have to be on that checkpoint. You can't just leave that checkpoint at that point to go and work from home. That's just the reality of life. But flexibility is the bit that I think companies thinking about so for me flexibility let's take a security guard as an example do they have the flexibility of changing their shift so they can go to parents evening do they have um freedom of opportunity to ask to maybe go on a training program because they want to do a different type of security maybe they want to get into some kind of other area of the business so for me when i look at the data what keeps talking back to me is flexibility and there's a whole war being waged to do with like people that have got investments in property and all this kind of stuff that we're all just all the pawns in that debate and we should just ignore it because the waves will go where the waves are going to go. And it's important for us to work out how you create an environment that's flexible that your people thrive in. And just, you are living in the UK. Talk to me about the UK economy at the moment and what's going on there. You election coming up soon as well, I think. I think it's a stressful time to be in the UK. I think last time we met up in Dublin, it was absolutely booming. I've always kind of felt that the winner out of Brexit would always be Dublin because it's now the English, the largest English-speaking city in the European Union. Um, so I don't want to get into Brexit, but there's just a lot that divides people at the moment, whether that be politics, whether that be economy. But again, I can't even remember how many chancellors and prime ministers we've had in the last years but that uncertainty puts people into fight or flight and i think people want to know direction and go back to purpose i don't think the uk has a specific direction i think it i still read a lot of the irish news and i read one of the politicians saying we just can't understand why the uk are have removed themselves from the international scene on such important subjects so i still think the UK is an absolutely unbelievable country and place to be, an opportunity. My granddad had moved here said, if you can't make it in the southeast of England, where can you make it? And that's probably quite a, uh, not a very modern statement to say, but the opportunity is still here. People still want to move here, but I think we've got some big challenges. But I just think we don't have the right people attracted into politics 
to start to answer some of those really important questions. I don't think we have the right talent in the right place. And if we elevate that to society in general and how we educate children like Izzy and Fred for the future and prepare them, any reflections or thoughts from your perspective? Uh, for me, it's unlikely I would write another book because I find it quite a stressful process. Um, however, if I was going to write another book, I think I'd try and take the research and the data we've got and collect more from children and work closely with like, psychologists and neuroscientists in the world of children. Having been through, seeing my thoughts go through anxiety and everything, I would try and perhaps do a, a children's version of the happiness index because we can't all fix these bigger problems, but I do think the power of children and what they do and how they look at problems is unbelievable. And so if you get some of this stuff that we're talking about, like, so I coach girls football. We played against a team the other day. Our girls are year four to six. So their age range is about eight to 10. One of the girls in the other team was a year eight. So potentially four years older than our youngest player. And just really, they were really tall and physically the size of them. And our team just went into fight or flight. I've been training our team. Like we, if you watch us, we like to think we're like the Barcelona of under 11 scales football. Like we can play it around. We're really great. But we just went into our shells. And I'm giving you just a funny example, but I could just see the neuroscience going on. And I felt to myself as a coach, I've worked with them really well on the practical skills of how to pass the football. But I haven't, I actually haven't applied what I've learned at work to, to their brains. So I'm starting to think, how can I bring some of this neuroscience into my coaching? I'm sure knowing you, Matt, you will find a way. Some quick fire questions to wrap up then, Matt. A book that you'd most recommend? I know you're an avid reader. I mentioned it a couple of times in, the, in my book, actually. I just think everyone right now needs to... Have, have you read George Orwell's 1984? Yeah. Um, for those that haven't read it and that are listening, just go and get a copy and read it. And if you haven't reread it in the last two years, just go and reread it. It is the book is timeless. It is unbelievable. But my point on it is George Orwell predicts a potential dystopian future that we should guard against where states control how we think and feel. However, the only thing that George Orwell didn't predict in the book is that potentially these power sources could be companies, not states. And look, I work with companies, hundreds of thousands of employees, so they're not the enemy. All I'm saying is big companies are not bad in all cases. All I'm saying is as citizens and employees, we should educate ourselves on the positives and negatives of where society can go. And now companies are so big, I think in citizens, one should understand the, the teachings in that book, but we're all employees as well, including myself, including you and your own company, John, just to be able to ask the right questions. So it's also a great book. It's a really good book. So I would go and grab a copy of that. And I know that there's a lot of dystopian talk in there, but you have a very hopeful view of the future and hopeful view of humans as well. Podcasts, if you listen to anyone that you'd recommend. Oh, it's called um, it's uh, Ra uh, Raj um, Owl. Oh my God, what is it called? It's called The Owl and it's by a couple of comedians, Tom. Um, oh my God. Now, I think it's called The Owl and the Pussycat or something, but it's, um, I can't believe I can't remember it, John, but it's my, it's... Close, close enough try there, Matt. We'll, uh, we'll send a link at the end. 
It's by um, it's it's by a couple of comedians, and I like it because they just it's escapism for me. Uh, it's a couple of comedians that most of you will know, um, and I think you'll enjoy. Best advice you were given in life? This came in our first coach coaching session with Clive Highland, which is how we know each other. And he said, uh, it was our first business coaching session. I thought we were going to get some business stuff going on. And he said, uh, listen to your body. And there's obviously a bit of an influence of that in the book when I say emotions are data points. But your body's telling you stuff all the time. And just listen to it. And I'll let people interpret that themselves what that means. But I think for me, I think about that. I've been for a run this morning because I was just feeling a bit rubbishy this morning. And I thought, I've got, I, I want to be in a good state to have a chat with John later. So I changed my diary a little bit. To, uh, but I probably wouldn't have done that before. I would have thought, oh, I'll just power through that. But the consequences are down the line if you don't listen to body. I'll leave everyone else on that part. Hey, Clive makes the point the body was there before the brain and is, is wiser. And uh, Hugh, I, I do my circuit classes twice a week and I feel a million dollars after, after that. If you to name one person that motivates and inspires you, who would that be and why? There's a guy I used to work for me called Artif. And when we were finishing up and we'd sold our first business, we're in this kind of like crazy point where we're like, we want to do this and we want to change the world and we want to do this. And we were all like, uh, we were all excited. And I remember Artif said to me, he's like, the thing is, the thing is, Matt, you just, just need to be a good employer. It really stuck with me because you can sit there, can't you? You think, oh, I want to do this and I want to change this and I want to invent this company or I want to invent this product. It's like, Maybe if you're just a good employer, maybe if everyone is just tries to look after the people that work with each other. So I'm not, I'm not a pedestal person. There's not any one where I think like that. But for me, it's like the daddy drops his kids off at school. Or it's just your normal people that are going out of the way for each other every single day. And people do it every day, don't they? So it's just, it's just, just your normal people that are going out of the way for each other is what I would answer that. Brilliant. We often put people on a pedestal, don't we, and find out there's more to them afterwards. I think, you know, what I've learned from a conversation, Matt, is that you are a renegade, self-described renegade, and you come from outside a sector of HR and you ask questions and you solve problems. And I think that's a really great takeaway for people who kind of feel boxed into careers and silos in their world. If you ask enough questions, if you reflect and if you think, you can achieve many great things in life. And if you have an interest in, in human beings, which I know you have, and you left us with a fantastic line in your book towards the end, I no longer ask myself, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is simply finding meaning in life. And I absolutely love that. And I think the book should be on every coffee table for every CEO and CPO too to refer to, and it will answer many, many questions that are coming up on a repeated basis for people around the challenges that their organization might be dealing with. So Matt, it's been brilliant having you on and love the conversation and could talk to you all day, but uh, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.